Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 94 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And for this episode, I'm going to be doing something different, something I've never done before. And that is I'm going to read, I'm going to share with you an actual academic history research paper I wrote a number of years ago. So I hope you'll find it interesting uh, for a number of reasons. But before I get into that, let me go ahead and give my Patreon shoutouts, my thank yous to those excellent individuals who have stepped up to help support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. Big thank yous go out to Carl, to ZH, to Jeff, to Danny, to Curtis, and to Josh. Thank all of you very much. Remember, if you sign up to support the Dangerous History Podcast for any amount per episode via Patreon, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a $1 per episode donation, you will also have access to special Dangerous History Podcast bonus episodes available to those Patreon supporters of a dollar more per episode that are available nowhere else. So I hope, if you're not already, you'll consider supporting the show via Patreon, and also go over to profcj.org slash donate to see all the other ways you can help out the show as well. So this paper I'm going to read to you is one that I wrote actually almost 11 years ago, when I was in grad school working on my master's degree in the spring of 2005. This is a piece of original research based on primary sources, and this is a kind of a formal history paper. I did this while in a research seminar course that was a modern European history course in which all of the students were doing an original history uh, research project, generally on their area of expertise. And the common theme, though, we had to have a common theme tying the course together, was propaganda. So pretty much you could do any topic that was approved by the instructor that had to do with modern European history and had an angle of propaganda. This was the course, by the way, where I was first exposed to Jock Elul's book, Propaganda, that I've mentioned several times on the podcast before. That was one of the required readings that we read, um, all students read, and we discussed in the course uh, prior to us embarking on our own research project. The course, the way it ran was like, for the first, I don't know, month or so, we would meet together and kind of like a typical history seminar course, we'd all be reading one or more books or articles per week, and we'd get together and discuss them and so on. 
So we read Elul's Propaganda. We read several other books on propaganda that I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, I know for sure one had to do with Stalin's Russia, another had to do with Hitler's Germany and the propaganda in those countries. But then after reading several books, including Elul and discussing them, then the rest of the semester, it was almost like we were all kind of independent study with the instructor. We would we would communicate via email and meet with them periodically to kind of, you know, keep in touch on how we were doing. By the way, it was one of the best professors I had in graduate school. He was a specialist on Soviet Russia and the Eastern Bloc and had done a lot of work on the propaganda um, in those parts of the world during the Cold War years. So very interesting. And also, I think one of the few professors I had in graduate school who I'm pretty sure was some kind of right winger. But he was one of these guys who was just very eloquent as well. He wasn't this wasn't a lecture course. It was a discussion course. And yet when he would speak about something, it was just so articulate and so compellingly put that you you almost felt like you were listening to a, a great presentation. Anyway, the sorts of papers that we wrote are the types of papers that you would find in an academic history journal or that you would find being presented at a history conference, that sort of thing. So there's original research. There's also discussion of historiography. Historiography, if you don't know that term, is understanding how prior historians have investigated and described and interpreted certain historical events and how how that history and the interpretation of it changes over time for various reasons. So this paper runs uh, just under 30 pages in length. It's got extensive footnotes. No, when I'm reading it to you, I'm not mentioning the footnotes, so um, that would make it take forever and and highly tedious. So I'm, I'm not footnoting as I'm reading. But understand, the paper does have extensive footnotes documenting all the different sources. And it's the sort of paper that if... If uh, bulked up just a little bit would basically be a master's thesis. And in my case, I did a non-thesis master's degree. The reason I chose to do a non-thesis master's degree was that I wanted to study a wider variety of topics. And at least at the university I went to for my master's degree, if you do a thesis master's degree, you do a, a research paper of about 50 pages and just the way like your class load works out, you have to specialize a little bit more. And so I'm a non-specialist by nature, so I went with the non-thesis MA instead. But, you know, I did this project, which was almost, it was like, you know, 80% of a master's thesis, just a little bit of expansion, and it it would have easily been a master's thesis. So for this course, um, by the end of the semester, not only did we complete these sorts of papers, but in addition, we had our own mini conference wherein we presented our research to our department and believe it or not I even wore a tie something that I can probably count on one hand the number of times in my life that I have worn a tie I think I'm allergic to them so we had to give like a 20 30 minute presentation summarizing our paper and then field questions related to it as well now you'll notice once I start reading the paper that this is typical academic history paper format and if you're not familiar with that it kind of goes like this. There's sort of a standard way that you do it. Typically, you begin your paper with an anecdote about or else a description of the topic of focus. In my case, I hadn't collected a really compelling anecdote. Probably could have found one if I kept digging. but um, So I just had a description of the topic as my opening. Then usually after about a paragraph or at most a page of, of an opening like that, you launch into a discussion of the existing historiography about your topic of focus. So you talk about, you know, have any other historians written about it? If so, what did they have to say about it, etc. 
Now, you want your paper to have something new to it. So it's either going to be looking at a topic that's been entirely or mostly neglected or else uh, coming up with a totally different interpretation or view of a topic, possibly based on looking at sources that no one else has looked at regarding that topic before. So after you discuss the existing historiography of the topic, usually while you're doing that or just after you do that, you express its shortcomings and basically why does your paper deserve to be written? What what gap does it fill or what, what shortcoming does it fix in the existing historiography of a particular topic? Then the bulk of your paper is your investigation of the topic or the subject, including your examination of the sources that you looked at, your discussion of and interpretation of those sources, your historical context. In other words, the specific thing you're looking at, how does it fit into what else was happening in the world or in, the, in that part of the world in the same time period? And basically, the, the kind of meta thing that you're doing with all this is you've got a, a main thesis or argument, and you are supporting it with your evidence. Then once you've done that, and like I've said, that is basically the bulk of your paper, you wrap up with a brief summation of your argument and tie it in how it contributes to scholarship in the particular field and subject area in question. Now, in my case, my primary field of study when I was in graduate school was British Empire. So I had to find a topic that had something to do with the British Empire and also had a propaganda aspect to it. And I had to find something that hadn't been extensively written about, something on which I could come up with a new spin, preferably something in which I could look at some sources that people hadn't really looked at before. And I also had to come up with something that I could get sources about. In other words, it could be a great topic that no one had been written about, but if there was no way for me to access primary sources without traveling around the world, that wasn't going to happen because I had to do this in the space of one semester and I didn't have any travel budget. So after some some reading and thinking and discussion with the instructor, I decided that I was going to zoom in and look at the British Empire exhibitions in the interwar years, meaning between World War I and World War II. Think of these as like a world's fair of the British Empire, and these things would be open for like five months, and there was one in Wembley in the 1920s and one in Glasgow, Scotland in the 1930s. So like a world's fair, but the theme theme of it is celebrating the British Empire. Like this is massive propaganda, and I really like this idea of it being a, a kind of propaganda that people don't normally think of. When people think of propaganda, they normally immediately want to think of things like Mass media, television, radio, posters, film, those sorts of things. And those things certainly often are propaganda. But there's lots of other forms of propaganda that um, people don't always realize are propaganda. And that would include things like these exhibitions. Now, when looking at these exhibitions, I had to figure out what are some sources I can look at that I can get my hands on that haven't already been extensively looked at by anybody previously. So I'm looking for an innovative angle. And overall, I think this paper was fairly innovative. I'm, I'm pretty proud of my work here. I think it's innovative, number one, because I couldn't find an academic paper that had previously been written that was focused on these British Empire exhibitions. And the second reason I think my paper was innovative was that I used, as some of my main sources, things that are not often used at least weren't in 2005, as sources for historical papers, namely souvenirs. 
So I managed to get my hands on a number of souvenirs, and I was quite clever. I used eBay, which was just starting to get big in 2005, and I'd only been using eBay myself for probably a year or two. But I was able to find a significant number of souvenirs from these exhibitions, often quite inexpensive. Now, they might be beat up or whatever, but they were still you know, usable. You could read them or whatever. And so that was that was what I did. It was I was proud of myself for being uh, clever and un- unconventional there, using eBay to get my hands on these souvenirs from these things that I then used as sources in my paper. And um, you know, it cost me a little bit of money, but I was able to afford it, even though I was a broke grad school student. So I hope you'll find this paper interesting from the standpoint of if you've never read it, um, a formal history, you know, academic history paper, you'll get a feel for what they're like. And also, I think there's some interesting stuff in it in terms of material regarding things like imperialism and propaganda and how imperialism is sold or is, uh, you know, potentially sold to the masses. So here you go. Here's my paper. British Bric-a-Brac, Souvenirs and the Message of the 1924-25 Wembley and 1938 Glasgow British Empire Exhibitions. Submitted April 18, 2005. During the years between the world wars, the British government, in cooperation with private industry, constructed two great empire exhibitions, the larger at Wembley from 1924 to 1925, and the smaller at Glasgow in 1938. If we define propaganda as, in historian John Mackenzie's words, quote, the transmission of ideas and values from one person or group of persons to another, with the specific intention of influencing the recipient's attitudes, in such a way that the interests of its authors will be enhanced, end quote. Then clearly these exhibitions epitomize propaganda. But what ideas and values did they transmit? This may at first appear an easy question to answer, having been addressed by several highly esteemed British Empire scholars. The majority of historians who address the Wembley and Glasgow exhibitions see a primarily economic message being broadcast. John Mackenzie, the foremost scholar on British imperial propaganda, claims that, quote, all the exhibitions emphasize the notion of empire as an interlocking economic unit, end quote. This includes Wembley, which he argues focused mostly on an, quote, imperial economic vision, end quote. In support of this economic interpretation, Mackenzie notes that in the aftermath of this exhibition, quote, the dominions and colonies were convinced that the exhibition had had a dramatic effect upon their trade, end quote. Mackenzie devotes less space to the Glasgow exhibition. He does point out that the initial idea for it in 1931, at the low point of the slump, the British Great Depression, was, quote, as a conscious effort to provide employment and to advertise home-based depressed industries, end quote. Still, he notes, quote, the exhibition remained imperial in appearance, in tone, and in name, end quote. This seems to indicate that Mackenzie interprets the exhibition's primary message as economic in nature, but camouflaged within imperial rhetoric and symbolism. Neil Ferguson also focuses on the economic message of the Wembley exhibition, claiming that it was, quote, an affirmation that the empire had more than just a glorious past, but a future, too, and in particular, an economic future, end quote. For Ferguson, this interpretation seems only natural, as he is primarily an economic historian. However, he characterizes the interwar years overall as a period of self-doubt and ideological uncertainty for Britain and the empire. Many Britons were no longer, quote, taking their empire seriously, end quote, 
and, quote, all over the empire a generation was quietly cracking, end quote. This, quote, creeping crisis of confidence, end quote, and collective attack of doubt, end quote, festered in the wake of what many saw as the, quote, crippling price Britain had paid for its victory over Germany, end quote. Yet for some reason, Ferguson does not read this alliterative angst into the Wembley exhibition, and focuses almost exclusively on its economic propaganda, the message intended to ensure, to assure average Brits that, quote, there really was steel money in the empire, end quote. And, like most historians, he does not mention the Glasgow exhibition, possibly due to Wembley's overshadowing it both at the time and in current records. On the other side of this interpretive divide, Dennis Judd is one of the few historians who see beyond the economic layer of the propaganda at Wembley. However, he too fails to address the Glasgow exhibition. Judd acknowledges the presence of economic themes at Wembley, for example, pointing out that the king, in his speeches at the exhibition, quote, was fundamentally asking the peoples of the empire to stay loyal and to buy British as never before, end quote. Yet this economic injunction was not the entirety of the message, but in fact a part of a larger one. Lord Milner, for example, quote, was more candid, end quote, than the king, quote, when he, meaning Milner, saw that the scientific, technological, and commercial displays at Wembley, if properly utilized, would help provide a powerful bulwark against imperial decline and decay, end quote. In this vein, Judd claims that, in contrast to mere economic motives, quote, the more pressing and weighty reason for staging the exhibition was the need to promote and interpret the imperial idea amid the fresh challenges of the post-war world. Idealism appeared generally to be in short supply. The old themes of late 19th century new imperialism could be reworked, both to inspire a new generation and to give reassurance and solace to their elders. The Wembley exhibition would be the launch pad and selling point of the enterprise." End quote. Judd does not, of course, spend more than a part of a chapter discussing Wembley, situated as it is within his panoramic empire, the British imperial experience from 1765 to the present. Upon examining the exhibitions in greater detail, however, Judd's interpretation becomes more credulous than that of the economic consensus. In addition to Dennis Judd, James Morris, the colorful reporter-turned-historian who became Jan Morris in 1972, also sees a greater message than simply that of economic appeal. Morris takes an, quote, aesthetic view, end quote, of imperial history, concerned, quote, not so much with what the British Empire meant as what it felt like, end quote. Like Judd and Ferguson, Morris addresses only the Wembley exhibition and neglects to look at the smaller Glasgow exhibition. Morris opines that, quote, the empire held little interest for the masses, end quote, in the wake of World War I, and that, quote, as an imperial nation, the British no longer looked as though they meant it very fervently, end quote. Thus, the ruling establishment, which still valued the empire in more than simply monetary terms, conceived of this greatest imperial exhibition, quote, to boost the image of empire, make it exciting to a new and more cynical generation, and contrive fresh realities for it, end quote. The British had, in Morris's view, lost their appetite for adventure, which Morris sees as the real driving force behind the Victorian Empire. No longer did, quote, the mill girls and the bank clerks, end quote, dream, quote, of Indian adventures, African romances, or even death or glory upon the imperial battlefields, end quote. Instead, they increasingly sought their escape from daily life in the form of Hollywood films. This, quote, lack of interest, end quote, led to, quote, 
doubt. They doubted everything, and many now doubted the justice of the imperial idea. End quote. Morris sees the Wembley exhibition as an attempt on the part of the British governing elite to reinstill this lost lust for the imperial adventure. Clearly, these discrepancies in interpreting the exhibition's message necessitate further investigation. To re-examine the message of the exhibitions, one must look not only at the displays and pavilions, but also at another large body of sources that remains only cursorily examined. The material culture, consisting of the huge amounts of bric-a-brac, souvenirs, and ephemera that visitors bought at the exhibitions. The humble souvenir is one of the most oft-overlooked sources of propaganda. In a way, all historians' sources can be seen as souvenirs, as historians, like tourists, are involved in the task of giving, quote, these fragments a new identity as well as preserving them for posterity, end quote. Souvenirs, the material culture of tourism, edited by Michael Hitchcock and Ken Teague, is a diverse collection of essays looking at souvenirs from a sociological and anthropological perspective. In his introduction, Hitchcock defines souvenirs as, quote, mementos of place and occasions, and, though often regarded as ephemeral, they may be counted among the most valued items acquired, end quote, by their purchasers. The construction of authenticity is a crucial element in establishing this value. In fact, quote, the authenticity of the artifact is linked by purchasers to the perceived authenticity of the experience, end quote. Hitchcock notes the long-established existence of a solidarity market for souvenirs, which consists of items sold to raise funds for a cause, generally a charity of some sort. In this case, buyers may not want the item for its intrinsic value and, quote, may not even like the product. It is the message that counts, end quote. Furthermore, quote, souvenirs and national emblems have similar properties, end quote, and the two, quote, may become entangled almost accidentally, end quote. However, despite the obvious power and significance of souvenirs, Hitchcock admits that the exchange between producer and purchaser, quote, is often characterized by ambiguity, since the maker's original intentions and the buyer's response often diverge, end quote. In addition to sociologists and anthropologists, some historians have also begun to take a closer look at souvenirs, knickknacks, and bric-a-brac. Stefan Adun Ruzo and Annette Becker describe their encounter with World War I propaganda objects at the Historial de Peron, an encounter that they claim change their view of propaganda. These items, the authors point out, are not typical top-down propaganda. Instead, quote, we are in the realm of supply and demand. There is no ban and no incitement, end quote. Thus, these types of items can be seen as both horizontal and decentralized propaganda. Many of them had seen, quote, extremely wide dissemination, end quote, and, quote, their present-day prices give an indication of their rarity or availability, end quote. This then indicates, quote, not only had many people been involved in the design and mass production of such items, many more had bought them, end quote. The authors believe that such non-traditional sources will reveal, quote, new vistas, end quote, for historians. The British Empire exhibitions in the aftermath of the Great War saw the reuse of this form of propaganda, which had been developed and honed in the war years. As French sociologist Jacques Ellul has perceptively noted, quote, Propaganda is not a one-size-fits-all technique. It should always be customized to best influence the intended recipients. 
the propagandists must appeal to as many universal and pre-existing tendencies in the society as possible, end quote. In the case of capitalist societies, consumer culture provides a perfect entryway. Consumers in a capitalist society often see acquiring possessions as a recreational pastime. Buying things, even or perhaps especially superfluous things, is seen as such an essential component of happiness that many people are willing to sacrifice leisure time in order to be able to buy things they don't really need and may never have time to enjoy. Quote, one expresses his or her sense of personality by imprinting it into possessions, end quote. An observation first made by Georg Friedrich Hegel, in whose mind, quote, property and personhood, end quote, became, quote, nearly synonymous, end quote. Seen in this light, the souvenir as propaganda is one of the most ingenious methods of infiltrating the minds of citizens in a democratic capitalist society. It is a form of propaganda that is not forced on anyone, simply made available for purchase. And the consumers almost reflexively find that they now simply cannot live without a British Empire exhibition trinket of some sort. Furthermore, the conflation of identity with possession encourages consumers of propaganda souvenirs to identify themselves with their new possession, and thereby, in this case, with the British Empire itself. Scholars who have examined the exhibitions as propaganda have generally cited the huge amount of souvenirs sold to show popular support. This conclusion is reasonable, yet there is more. The souvenir is not just an indicator of popular receptiveness to and approval of the imperial message. The souvenir itself also is propaganda. A consumer must usually, in order to bring himself to purchase these items in the first place, at least tacitly approve of the British Empire. Very few vehement anti-imperialists would buy such items. Most would not have even attended an exhibition. Yet once bought, the items would continue to reinforce those already extant beliefs in a sympathetic purchaser. Every time one would drink a cup of tea, smoke a cigarette, or play cards, for example, one would see the symbols of empire. A souvenir can thus be seen as the propaganda that keeps on propagandizing. It is true that today, many of these items are considered little more than kitschy relics of an empire at sunset. Yet patrons of the exhibitions would probably not have seen them that way at the time. The souvenirs of the Wembley and Glasgow exhibitions can be divided into two groups, verbal and nonverbal. The verbal souvenirs were probably more potent, at least potentially, due to their smaller scope for interpretation. They were also probably more potent because, in addition to their own intrinsic propaganda power, they also guided the visitor's perceptions, telling the reader not only what he would see at the various exhibits, but also how to interpret what he would see. However, one must not overlook the power of symbols and other nonverbal forms of propaganda, and so nonverbal souvenirs need to be noted as well. Besides souvenirs, newspapers can also be seen as a buttress supporting the message that the elites hope to convey to the public at the exhibitions. David Reynolds claims that in this era, quote, the British press simply reflected the opinions of policymakers, end quote, most of the time. This is certainly truest in the case of the archetypical metropolitan paper, The Times. But before looking at each exhibition's sources in detail, one needs to look at each exhibition more generally, starting with Wembley. The inspiration for the Wembley exhibition came initially from the British Empire League in 1902, but was killed by the liberal victory of 1906 
and was revived by Lord Strathcona in 1913. However, the outbreak of the Great War precluded the possibility of any great public extravaganza. After the ceasing of hostilities, the idea was revived, and in 1920, its advocates persuaded Prime Minister David Lloyd George and Parliament to contribute half of the £2.2 million of upfront capital for constructing the exhibition. The result was the British Empire Exhibition Incorporated, a body whose board of management was entirely filled with aristocrats, with the Prince of Wales as the figurehead president of the exhibition. The site chosen was Wembley, a suburb near London. The Wembley Stadium, built for the exhibition, was finished in time to host the 1923 Football Association Cup Final. The next year, on April 23, 1924, the exhibition officially opened. The two largest buildings at the Wembley Exhibition were the Palace of Industry and the Palace of Engineering, the latter renamed the Palace of Housing and Transport in 1925. These plus the Palace of Arts and the British Government Building constituted the chief contributions of the mother country. Most of the pavilions for the dominions and colonies were built in a quasi-indigenous style. For example, the Burma Pavilion was reminiscent of the Temple of Mandalay, the East African Pavilion was Zanzibar-styled, and the Indian Pavilion displayed 17th-century Mughal architectural flourishes. In addition to the dominions and colonies, various firms and companies, such as the British Broadcasting Corporation, the Times Newspaper, Lipton Tea, and many more, occupied advertising kiosks and pavilions of their own. Religious organizations constructed small churches, and Rudyard Kipling gave imperial theme names such as Dominion Way, Union Approach, Atlantic Slope, and Craftsman's Way to the area streets. The exhibition was part education, but also part entertainment, hosting a large amusement park as well as pageants, parades, and concerts. The Wembley Exhibition closed on November 1, 1924, but would return for another season from May 9 to October 31, 1925. Attendance dropped by nearly half this second season. During the first season, over 17 million visitors, an average of over 104,000 per day, attended. In the second season, less than 10 million attended, an average of only about 65,000 per day. Still in all, over 27 million people visited the Wembley Exhibition, quite an impressive figure. Yet despite these massive crowds, the venture lost money, over 1.5 million pounds total. No doubt a disappointment to the exhibition's leadership, who originally had intended to divide the large projected profits amongst, quote, the home government and the dominions of the colonies, end quote, for, quote, public purposes, end quote, of an unspecified type. Upon the purchase of admission, visitors were offered a free map and guide of the exhibition. Much of the perception of the Wembley exhibition as primarily an economic advertisement seems to stem from this section of text, from that free map and guide, a section invariably quoted by advocates of the economic message. Quote, The primary purposes of the British Empire exhibition are to find in the development and utilization of the raw materials of the empire new sources of imperial wealth, to foster inter-imperial trade and open fresh world markets for dominion and home products, to make the different races of the British Empire better known to each other, and to demonstrate to the people of Britain the almost illimitable possibilities of the Dominion's colonies and dependencies overseas. By enabling the visitor to see for himself the infinite variety of the resources of the Empire side by side with the wonders of industry which the home country can produce, the exhibition should be of incalculable value to British trade. End quote. 
This passage is undeniably economic in emphasis, and when read in isolation, seems to preclude any further analysis or debate. But this was hardly the only message being broadcast at Wembley. In addition to the free map and guide, official guides, one each for 1924 and 1925, were available for sale, with greater detail about all aspects of the exhibition. The introduction to the 1925 official guide expressed the hope that visitors will glean a sense of, quote, what the empire has achieved or what remains to be done, end quote, because, quote, every one of us is, in some sense, responsible. We are pioneers or administrators or citizens with a voice in the disposal of our imperial heritage, and we can only hope to use that voice wisely and for the public good if we learn to understand the nature of the decisions we are asked to take. Wembley sets them out. Wembley explains them, end quote. Significantly, this and much of the other verbal propaganda referred to people living in the empire as citizens, not subjects. As it continued, this introduction also pointed out the desirability of increased immigration from the metropolis to the frontiers of the empire, argued for greater imperial economic self-sufficiency, encouraged general unity and coordination between the center and periphery, and hoped that Wembley will engender greater closeness among the diverse racial, ethnic, and religious elements of the empire. But these are just parts of the whole message, which the end of the introduction summarizes as, quote, a focus of the might, the achievement, and the progress of the greatest empire that history has known. It is for every citizen who takes a real pride in his citizenship to maintain and encourage the new phase of a vast endeavor, end quote. In describing the updates that had been made on the exhibition since 1924, the 1925 official guide emphasizes an addition specifically made for young children, a treasure island inhabited by such characters as Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Long John Silver. This seems intended to encourage a swashbuckling sense of adventure in those who would be most susceptible to it, namely youngsters. Experiencing such youthful adventures in the context of the Empire exhibition might forever link the two concepts, the Empire and Adventure, in the minds of the impressionable. Although it was not the largest building at the exhibition, the official guide devotes much space to the British government building, claiming that, quote, no section of the Empire exhibition drew a larger patronage or a louder praise in 1924, end quote. Its ostensible purpose was to show how the empire was administered. It included exhibits such as the Post Office, Military History, Court of Heroes, Royal Air Force, Royal Navy, Health and Housing, Overseas Trade, Overseas Settlement, Agriculture, and many more governmental functions. The naval display depicted the story of the storming of Zeebrugge, which is depicted as, quote, Perhaps the most dramatic naval episode of the Great War, the national response to this stirring drama, is reinforced here by the Briton's love for the sea and his interest in all that pertains to the lives of those who uphold the might of the empire upon its waters, end quote. Zebrus supposedly, quote, recalls the most famous exploits of Sir Francis Drake, end quote. Another display, the Court of Heroes, contains, quote, statues, pictures, and relics of the great figures who have played their part in the writing of British history, end quote. Clearly, imperial pride was not far separated in the minds of the government building's designers from the more mundane matters of government, such as mail delivery. Aside from the verbal souvenirs, countless nonverbal souvenir objects were sold at Wembley. 
Among the more popular items were silverware, postage stamps, postcards, tea caddies, teapots, ashtrays, pen knives, stationery, and all manner of china figurines from oxen to frogs to ambulances to submarines. Most of these items had engraved on them, quote, the lion rampant, which was Wembley's symbol, end quote, and which, quote, became part of the nation's visual currency, end quote. While no surviving evidence of debates surrounding the choosing of the symbols are known to exist at present, it is significant that the emblem of both the Wembley and the Glasgow exhibitions was the lion, arguably the epitome of monarchical and martial symbolism and not, for example, the symbol for the pound sterling. The ubiquitous Wembley lion was the creation of Jay Herrick and, quote, still appears on printed matter today and can be seen on the flag flying on the stadium. End quote. Thus, both the verbal and nonverbal souvenirs contained a larger message than a simply economic one. The mainstream newspapers, always hyperbolically positive in their portrayals of the exhibitions, also articulated a deeper imperial meaning. A Times editorial on the opening day of the Wembley exhibition asked, quote, What will the British Empire exhibition teach the millions of the citizens of the empire who will visit it in the next few months? End quote. It answered that it will hopefully teach them, quote, the lesson of their duty and their privilege as members of that mighty whole, end quote. The editorial then brought up the sacrifices the entire empire had made during the recent Great War and hoped to continue that noble spirit. Quote, the imperial patriotism which flamed up in the war must be rekindled to mold in other fields the bonds of our common empire. Of the millions who will visit the exhibition, but a part, and perhaps no very large part, will grasp this lesson. Consciously, no living mind may apprehend its full significance, but almost all, it may be hoped, will imbibe something of the vital truth it is there to teach. End quote. The empire is breathlessly described as a story that is, quote, a romance of adventure, of daring, of hopes deferred but not abandoned, of persevering labor, of war, of famine and of pestilence endured and overcome, of noble lives nobly spent, of high aims and patient endeavor often thwarted but never dropped, of loyalty, of honor, and of justice, of errors too, and follies recklessly committed and splendidly retrieved, of wrongs, of crimes even, lest we forget, repented and atoned of majesty, majestus, in the full Roman sense, but loftier and purer than the majesty of Rome. This potent instrument of good for ourselves and for mankind must be defended and upheld, in peacetime as in war, by the virtues and qualities that made it." End quote. A page later, a small article entitled simply Commercial Enterprise told readers that at the Palaces of Engineering and Industry, quote, we see one of the foundations of British eminence in the world, one of the bedrocks on which the empire is built. No one can study such display without gaining a new confidence in the empire's strength. End quote. This statement admits of the existence of more than one pillar of imperial faith. The article continues in this vein, pointing out the existence of, quote, something larger than any commercial spirit behind this exhibition. It is built on loyalty and on faith in an ideal. It is the embodiment of the greatest and best spiritual factor in the political sphere that the world has ever seen, end quote. This, quote, greatest and best spiritual factor, end quote, is never defined clearly. Its exact meaning seems conveniently malleable depending on the circumstances. 
but it seems to be the belief that the British Empire was morally beneficial for all involved. An article on the first closing day, November 1, 1924, claimed that, quote, the impression of the might and majesty of the empire, which has been created in the minds of visitors from foreign countries, we know from overwhelming evidence, has been profound, end quote, and asserted that, quote, the revelation of what the empire stands for cannot have failed to create a quickening of pride and a larger patriotism, end quote. The article claims that, quote, every part of the empire has been benefited not merely industrially, but spiritually, end quote. The exhibition provided an example of stability to the whole world, quote, a solid rock of comfort and of safety, an Ararat, more a rainbow promise in the skies of returning sunshine and fair weather. It was right that the British Empire and no other country should furnish this object lesson in the maintenance of sanity, end quote. Obviously, more than mere economics seemed to be at stake. In 1931, in the depths of the slump, the idea for another great imperial exhibition, this one to be held in heavily depressed western Scotland, began to emerge among Scottish elites. Glasgow, the site chosen, had hosted three previous exhibitions, 1888, 1901, and 1911, all of them successful. But the 1930 event would clearly surpass all previous Glasgow exhibitions by all measures. This exhibition has received much less notice from scholars than its Wembley sibling, which is in keeping with the contemporary coverage of it. Glasgow treasurer Patrick Dolan, for example, was disgruntled because the Glasgow exhibition wasn't more thoroughly publicized, especially in self-centered London. Like the Wembley exhibition, the Glasgow exhibition, set at Bella Houston Park, would combine entertainment, education, and propaganda. Furthermore, it was also a joint private and public venture. Most of the dominions and colonies were again represented at pavilions, as were various industries. Significantly, India, quote, absolutely declined to take part in the exhibition, end quote. While the Irish Free State, quote, had a large pavilion, although in many respects it was not a member of the empire, end quote. Also like Wembley, a large amusement park was included, as were a diverse variety of entertainments. The architecture was, for the most part, more modern style than the classical and indigenous styles at Wembley, with, quote, flat roofs, the ship's bridge frontages, the juxtaposition of the curve and the straight line, end quote, which, quote, conveyed the impression of a film set for the War of the Worlds or Things to Come, end quote. The centerpiece of this architecture was the very vertical Tower of Empire, which was often depicted in souvenirs of the exhibition. Another novel attraction was the Clacken, or traditional Highland Village replica, which proved to be one of the most popular exhibits. While modern Scotland was portrayed as a vital partner in the empire, as nearly the equal of the English metropolis in commerce and culture, ancient Scots, especially Highlanders, were portrayed as primitive indigenous people in many respects little different from, for example, Burmese natives. Although the Glasgow exhibition was significantly smaller than the Wembley exhibition, its importance lies in the fact that, although circumstantially one would expect it to be entirely economic in message, it, in fact, is only partly so. A series of significant events occurred between the closing of the Wembley Exhibition in October 1925 and the opening of the Glasgow Exhibition in May 1938. A shortlist would include the full enfranchisement of women, 1928, 
the Statue of Westminster granting autonomy to the Dominions, 1931, the Ottawa Conference, which instituted a tariff system of imperial preference, 1932, as well as the death of King George V, the abdication of Edward VIII, and the succession of George VI, 1936. Furthermore, the slump chronically deflated the economy throughout much of this period. And yet, the message had not changed much since Wembley, one of the primary alterations being a predictably greater emphasis on Scotland. It was, quote, important that Scottish national sentiment, admirable in itself, should not be allowed to become Scottish nationalist sentiment, end quote. Equally predictable was a more overt depiction of the Glasgow exhibition as an economic stimulus, but imperial themes had not disappeared. Bob Crampsey, who attended the Glasgow exhibition as a schoolboy and who, 50 years later, wrote The Empire Exhibition of 1938, The Last Durbar, calls it, quote, the last large-scale appeal to an imperial destiny. It was the last chance to glimpse what might have been the pattern of the peaceful 1940s, end quote, which were not to be. The, quote, official hope, end quote, on May 3rd, 1938, the opening day, according to the Times, was, quote, for a total attendance of 15 million to 20 million, end quote. Yet this figure was not met, probably due to a combination of chronically bad weather, inadequate publicity, and the international crises of August and September. When, by the closing day of October 29, 1938, only about 12,250,000 people had attended, the Times found it convenient to revise their opening day hope. Quote, it has been an enormous success, and the aim of promoters to attract 12 million visitors has been achieved. End quote. Among the notable verbal souvenirs from this exhibition is a small hardcover souvenir book entitled A Souvenir of the Empire Exhibition 1938. Empire Exhibition Scotland, published by the Daily Record and the Evening News newspapers four months into the exhibition. It contains not only a plethora of pictures from the Glasgow exhibition, but also written contributions from many of the elites who orchestrated it, including the Earl of Elgin, the president of the exhibition, Sir Cecil M. Weir, the chairman of the Council of Management of the Empire exhibition, and Sir John Stewart, the Right Honorable Lord Provost of Glasgow. For the most part, these contributions consist merely of platitudes praising the Empire's already apparent success, complementing Scotland's central contribution to both the Exhibition and the Empire in initiative, industry, commerce, government, and intellect, and thanking the newspapers for publishing the souvenir book. For example, Sir John Stewart likened the Exhibition to a, quote, brochure, end quote, claiming that industry, quote, has and will continue to be stimulated in years to come, end quote, by many of the displays, and hoped that visitors would now view Scotland, quote, as a progressive, modernized country, end quote. This was in keeping with the long-standing English ambiguity towards Scotland. Scotland was often portrayed simultaneously as England's first colony and its imperial partner. The Marchioness of Aberdeen and Tamer penned the most hyperbolic contribution. She mentions an article by Lord Kemsley in the same book, in which Kemsley warned that schoolchildren, quote, should not miss the inspiration that a rightly guided visit to the exhibition can give them, end quote. These children, the Marchioness believes, are the ones, quote, in whom lies the hope of not only our own great Commonwealth of British nations, but of the world, end quote. The Marchioness then references current events, quote, 
tragic stories unfolded to us day by day by our newspapers, end quote, and worries that the lack of forceful reaction to these, quote, atrocities, end quote, is due to an overriding fear of war that is, quote, surely deteriorating our whole national character, end quote. Yet despite this bellicose rhetoric, she reverts at the end of her piece to more pacific rhetoric, referencing the Peace Cairn and Peace Garden of the exhibition, as well as the League of Nations Covenant, and ruminating about a time when, quote, the frontiers of the world's countries are guarded by beautiful gardens instead of by armed men and fortresses, end quote. While she touts the accomplishment of, quote, engineers, end quote, and, quote, men and women of learning and industry and science and art and medical knowledge, end quote, she does not advocate these fields for profit, but, quote, to lift the life and condition of the human race onto a higher level, if only the individual men and women of that imperial race have sufficient vision to enter into their heritage, end quote. In sum, we see fear of imperial decline, bellicose yet pacific rhetoric, and a religious sense of purpose and exceptionalism. Further in this souvenir book, Harold Dixon, a special correspondent for the Daily Record and Evening News, praises the exhibition for its aesthetic qualities, particularly the, quote, glorious blaze of color, end quote, of the foliage and the, quote, massive column of radiance, end quote, that was the Tower of Empire. In contrast to the more classically styled architecture at Wembley, the architecture at Glasgow was very modern and art deco. In the case of the two exhibitions' respective lions, the relationship was reversed. The Wembley lion is modernistic and appears today almost fascist in style, whereas the Glasgow lion is more traditional and medieval in appearance. This juxtaposition of the modern and the ancient presents in microcosm British nationalist self-image. They saw Britain simultaneously at the forefront of modernism, yet firmly rooted in tradition. Lord Kembley's aforementioned article, Youth and the Exhibition, claims that every young person should see the exhibition because, quote, Empirex, to give it the short name, coined in Glasgow, is a mental tonic to adults. To youth, it is infinitely more important. It can be for them a lifelong inspiration, end quote. Kemsley, the chairman of Associated Scottish Newspapers Limited and Allied Newspapers Limited, worries that, quote, our school teachers trained so much in things of the past are apt to give children the idea that the day of the men who created the great things of the world is over, end quote. Kemsley claims, quote, our country is still as great as its history. We need no swashbuckling notions of patriotism, but we want you to appreciate the spirit of calm greatness that is characteristic of Britain, end quote. Industrial displays, Will Kemsley hopes, inspire pride, even if one, quote, never does more than one of the thousands of repetitive jobs which make up so much of modern engineering, end quote. The inspiration of the exhibit will make one see, quote, how valuable his own part really is, end quote. Nonverbal souvenirs also sold great quantities at Glasgow. Just as the exhibition itself, many were Scottish-themed, such as flannel-patterned clothing and cloths of all kinds and tape measures made to look like miniature beer barrels. The Tower of Empire was another common motif, adorning, among other things, bookmarks, bookmarks paperweights, and figurines. Most of these souvenirs also featured, in various degrees of prominence, the Red Glasgow Lion 
Some items, such as tankards, mugs, stamp boxes, playing cards, pen knives, buttons, badges, and ashtrays, were adorned solely with a large Glasgow lion. And photograph postcards of all types were also extremely popular, with those depicting the Clacken probably topping the list, a sales pattern which, like the high amount of attention visitors paid to the Clacken itself, has not been adequately explained by any historian. As in the case of Wembley, in addition to the souvenirs, the Times can provide some clues as to the message the elite hoped to convey at Glasgow, even though it bestowed significantly less coverage on it, due no doubt to Glasgow's greater distance from London, the exhibition's smaller size as compared to Wembley, and the greater number of distracting stories in 1938, especially in the realm of international affairs. An article on the opening day, May 3rd, 1938, quotes Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's foreword to the Glasgow Exhibition Official Guide. Quote, the exhibition has a special value at this time. For now, more perhaps than at any other time, there is need for mutual understanding and cooperation between the nations. We are pledged to work for peace and progress in the world, and it is my hope that this exhibition will make its contribution to that end. End quote. Thus, the Prime Minister, not long before his infamous appeasement of Hitler at Munich, expressed a Pacific imperial message. Then on closing day, October 29, 1938, a Times article claimed that, quote, The business acumen and organizing skill and national pride of Scotland have all been engaged in making the exhibition a triumph, and it has borne proud testimony to the vigor and courage of the industrial and commercial leadership of the northern race, end quote. Again, economic messages are present, but they are subordinate to a larger, grander theme. In sum, while the Glasgow Exhibition was certainly more economic in emphasis than its predecessor at Wembley, there was still a greater message being broadcast than simply financial encouragement. Both exhibitions sought, above all, to inculcate an ethos, a set of habits or attitudes, through imperial ideology, belief in the righteousness of the empire, and imperial virtue the traits deemed necessary in a people to be able to uphold and defend that empire in a hostile world, two intertwined and mutually reinforcing qualities. Almost from the moment they embarked upon their imperial enterprise, the British, as ardent students of classical history, began to fear decay and decline of these qualities, as evidenced prominently by Edward Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Later, in a period only a handful of decades removed from the Wembley and Glasgow exhibitions, Robert Baden-Powell, hero of the 1899-1902 Boer War, expressed similar fears of Britain's imperial decline. Such motivations were clearly prominent in Baden-Powell's founding of the Boy Scouts. The Empire exhibitions also fit into this anxious tradition as well. There were several elements to the imperial ideology, although the exact proportions of the mixture were fluid and changed with time and circumstance. The British rarely, if ever, admitted to having an ideology, and most were not even conscious that they had one. However, it would be reasonable to suggest that some form of imperial ideology, even if often unconsciously held and inarticulate, existed throughout Britain's in imperial experience, and that missionary Protestantism, racism, nationalism, British exceptionalism, a lust for adventure, and an abiding faith in commerce comprised much of it. Note that the faith in commerce was but a part of this larger ethos. It was at times a, su a substantial part, but still a part, not the ethos in its entirety. This ideology was clearly on display at the Empire Exhibitions. In fact, it was the very essence of the Exhibition's message. 
This imperial ideology rose to the status of myth in the minds of the majority of Britons, which is probably why most were not truly conscious of it. By myth in this context is meant, in Jacques Ellul's words, quote, an all-encompassing activating image, a sort of vision of desirable objectives that have lost their material practical character, end quote, and that in the most profound cases are, quote, shared by all individuals in a society, including men of opposite political inclinations and class loyalties, end quote. The devotion to empire of most British people, even many Labour Party leaders, confirms this. If imperial ideology was the why, imperial virtue was the how. Imperial virtue consisted of qualities such as general health, intelligence, courage, strength, virility, endurance, toughness, and martial prowess. In this particular case, however, the exhibitions consciously de-emphasized martial prowess. This, of course, is hardly unexpected given the historical context of these exhibitions. The, quote, rupture of the First World War scarred a generation, turning many against war as an instrument of policy, end quote. However, though the martial element was not as prominent in the interwar years as in earlier eras, it was by no means non-existent as shown by the Wembley and Glasgow Lions and the various exhibits devoted to military and naval matters. In answer to the question of who the intended recipients of this message were, there are several possibilities, none of them mutually exclusive. Clearly, the British metropolis intended to appeal to the increasingly autonomous dominions for solidarity, and certainly the exhibitions were aimed at a wider, extra-imperial audience in an attempt to reconcile the world to the continued existence of the British Empire in the age of the League of Nations. But the exhibitions were, quote, chiefly aimed at the domestic public, end quote. In a relatively democratic state such as Britain, the voting public is, collectively, the ultimate arbiter of power, whether or not they realize it. The proximity of the exhibitions, especially Wembley, to the British masses also supports this interpretation. While exhibitions were conducted in the Dominions as well, they paled in size and scope to the metropolitan exhibitions. Besides, the Great War had shown how important the masses were in the age of total war, and thus how crucial it was to foster imperial ideology and imperial virtue in them. The question of the reception of the ex of the exhibition's message remains more open than that of the message itself or of its intended recipients. Mackenzie offers several pieces of evidence to support the claim that they were, in fact, highly influential, but they are more circumstantial than absolute. First, Mackenzie points to the huge attendance figures. Furthermore, he claims that the vast amount of souvenirs sold, and the great numbers still extant today, indicate a widespread sympathy on the part of the public, an analysis similar to the previously mentioned solidarity market. Morris, on the other hand, is more doubtful and argues that the, quote, millions who did go often went for the wrong reasons, paying altogether too little attention to the New Zealand dairy products and altogether too much to the amusement park, the dance hall, and Joe Lyon's gigantic grill room, end quote. But the fact that they may have primarily gone for amusement and may have primarily engaged in amusement once there does not necessarily invalidate the possibility that the masses may have absorbed a great deal of patriotism and pride, even simply from the tone and decor of the amusements. Morris also points out the various groups and individuals who ridiculed Wembley, but Mackenzie argues that these iconoclasts were primarily members of the elite intelligentsia, and therefore their criticisms and satire probably did not reflect, probably did not at all reflect popular perceptions. 
So, on closer inspection, the interwar British Empire exhibitions at Wembley and Glasgow broadcast a message greater than merely an economic one. Here we see prime examples of imperial ideology and imperial virtue on display. Through several powerful media, including the overlooked but potent one of souvenirs, the leadership of the Wembley and Glasgow exhibitions sought to spread their message. Examining these souvenir artifacts reveals not only insights into the British imperial mind, but also insights into peacetime propaganda in a democracy. And the uh, professor in this course, by the way, gave me 100% both on the paper that I just read to you and on the presentation I did. I forget how long it was, maybe like 20, 30 minutes, I don't know, uh, to accompanying it, wherein I, I summarized my research in the paper and my conclusions and even mentioned a few things that, that I didn't mention in the paper. So anyway, I hope you found this uh, interesting to listen to and worthwhile. It gives an insight into my work and my mind in 2005. I was not intellectually and ideologically where I'm at now, but I was certainly heading in that direction already. Like I said, again, I think this will provide an example of what an academic history paper is like for those who've never read one before. I think there are pluses and minuses of this style and this way of doing a paper. Some of the pros that come to mind right away, number one, the historiography. By going extensively through and mentioning people who've already looked at the same or related topics, it fits what you're doing into existing history. It explains, you know, why you're doing something that's new or innovative or revisionist or somehow contributing to the, to the field of knowledge. And then another thing that I think is strong about this method of doing things is the documentation of sources, which you didn't necessarily get as much of a feel of because I didn't read you all my footnotes. But the fact that you can show, you know, where you got everything from, and someone, if they wanted to, could verify everything that you're saying in terms of your information, I think that is a strong aspect of academic history as it currently exists. Now, there are a lot of cons. One of them is um, these sorts of papers can be very dry. I don't think mine is terrible in that regard. I think mine is better than better than a lot that I've read, to be honest with you. But still, it's not, you know, the most interesting thing in the world. Part of the style is taking this so-called scholarly uh, tone of writing, which is somewhat detached and so on. Not to say that you can't have a little sense of humor and whatever, but they generally want you to not be polemical. Another problem of a paper like this is that they can often be over-specialized. You know, mine maybe maybe could be characterized that way, I don't know. It's somewhat in the, in the eye of the beholder, but still. You can even find papers that are way more uh, zoomed in on one micro thing than mine. And also related to this, um, this format can sometimes encourage groupthink and conformity in a variety of ways that I don't necessarily have time to get into here. Another shortcoming is audience. I didn't bother going through the trouble of getting this thing published in an academic journal, though I likely could have with just a little bit of effort. But I likely could have. I mean, it got an A, a 100% from a really respected instructor and, you know, other graduate students who wrote papers of this sort did get theirs published in various places. So I could have done that. Um, part of the reason probably is that academic journals don't pay you. You go to all the trouble and you wait and it takes them forever to make their decision to publish your article. And then you don't even get any payment, which I don't know, to me wasn't worth the hassle. And the other thing is hardly anybody reads academic history journals, to be honest with you. I mean, I'd be willing to get something published in a publication without payment if I knew it was going to be widely read. You know, that would be enough reward for me. But these things, 
I mean, tiny groups of people read these specialized articles. And so ironically, more people will listen to what I just read, my paper that I just read, within one hour of this episode being posted than would ever read it if the article had been published in an academic journal. Literally. I mean, within an hour or two, at least hundreds and hundreds of people will have listened to this. Rare is the article in an academic journal that has hundreds of people read it over the space of years. Before I go, I just want to say pretty soon I will be starting my mini-series on the history of slavery in America. So look for that to be coming out soon. In addition, before, after, possibly during that, look for all sorts of miscellaneous, you know, one-shot episodes of various types on my, my typical variety of topics, wide variety. Later this year, either in the summer or in the fall, I'll be doing a series on the so-called Civil War in American history as well. And then sometime in the future, and I have no idea when this will happen, it will probably be a many-part series. It'll probably be quite a massive undertaking. I am going to be doing a series on the rise and fall of the British Empire. For a variety of reasons, I think it's a fascinating topic. I think it's often overlooked in sort of the history of the rise and fall fall of empires. Everyone wants to talk about Rome and things like that. Uh, The British Empire often gets overlooked, even though it was quite impressive in size and had a huge effect on making our modern world into what it is. Plus, there's the fact that I spent a couple of years intensively studying the history of the British Empire in graduate school, and I rarely get to use very much of that information in my teaching these days. So I think it'll be cool to put all that, all the stuff that I know and all the research that I've done together into an epic series on the rise and fall of the British Empire, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So anyway, that's all stuff to look forward to coming down the road on the Dangerous History Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, that's profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that... For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.